Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name's Kevin Falta. I'm a professor. I'm a podcast host coming to you from Archer, Florida at Exotics Farms and the first podcast of the year 2021. And whereas everybody is kind of doing this year in review thing, I thought it might be a good idea to do it here too. However, it's going to do it a little bit differently. So when I'm not doing the Talking Biotech podcast, I'm working on a podcast called Science Facts and Fallacies. I do this with Cameron English. And the idea came up long ago. Cameron is a journalist. He's the senior director at, uh, I can't remember his exact title now, but the senior editor at Genetic Literacy Project. And those of you who know the GLP know it's an excellent repository of current science in the news. So Cameron is an extremely adept writer. He does a great job with that. We've written some things in the past together. And at one point, we have discussed well, we've discussed for years wouldn't it be great if scientists could connect with journalists and form teams to help journalists be better at interpreting and working with the scientists and help scientists be better at communicating and reaching the public kind of the best of both worlds and so Cameron and I have a really nice chemistry that works well together and every week we discuss some of the recent stories in Genetic Literacy Project. And so we uh, got together and this week decided that we would talk about the biggest science news, well, maybe not the biggest, but important science news stories from 2020. Now, most of this was overshadowed by uh, coronavirus and COVID, so we don't talk about that. Uh, sadly, a lot of very nice things took a second back seat uh, to what was happening with COVID-19. So today's podcast is a joint uh, Talking Biotech Science Facts and Fallacies podcast uh, with Cameron English. So I hope you enjoy this one. It's a little bit different. Um, we'll be back to our normal programming starting next week. But uh, this is a really nice recapitulation of some of the important things that happened in 2020 that maybe we forgot about. And it's a really good way to get back to it. So thank you, as always, for listening. Um, a year ago, this podcast was not going to continue. Uh, I had been advised by folks at my university that I was to stop all communication outreach, that uh, any kind of uh, visibility in social media or otherwise would not be tolerated and was told to cancel my talks, um, uh, stop reaching out with science. And uh, 
sounds ridiculous. There's lots of reasons behind that. Um, but long story short is that I really thought that it was overstepping. That, okay, fine. You can make me not do this at work, but you can't uh, dictate what I do in my private time, especially when it comes to production of very favorable media in science. It's not like I'm spreading anti-vax stuff or whatever. You know, it's, it, it's a little, this is real science. It's what I do. Good at this. So um, I petitioned my university to allow me to do biotechnology podcast, talking biotech podcast, and the science facts and fallacy podcast as what's called outside work. That I can fill out a form and say that uh, I'm doing work, employment, in a separate way that does not conflict with my duties as a university professor. And uh, you do this if you're consulting or anything like that. It's not a big deal. It's a couple forms to fill out. But um, I filled out forms so that I can talk to you on my own time. <laughs> um, I completely disagree with this. I think that what I do should be part of what a university does and part of university outreach. And certainly there are plenty of podcasts at my university that they support. So um, we're going to just keep this thing rolling and keep bringing it no matter what. And a year ago, it wasn't going to happen. Modesta Bugu stepped in. For those of you who remember Modesta, she's a student in my department who did a great job at filling the gap while we were sorting out what this thing was going to be. They told me I can't do it, but they didn't say I couldn't produce it for other people who would host it. And so that was the plan at the time. And eventually we got back to me hosting it. I need to write about the whole thing because there's a lot more details to it. And what you find is that, you know, they're, they're, their rationale for me not doing it, which, you know, I can describe. Um, but also uh, the SciComm folks who were deliberately targeting this which is actually where people in science communication, actually people you probably know and recognize from social media who were, uh, who were really at the root of causing a lot of my problems. It's really kind of interesting, unfortunately. And I won't mention any names because I don't need to dilute their message the way they wanted to dilute mine. You know, technically they're doing the same thing I hope to do. But anyway, we're going to start out 21 in a very positive way and look back at the really solid stories of 2020 i mentioned this other stuff just because i get a little i guess you'd say melancholy thinking about how this vehicle almost went off the road <laughs> i've been doing this for more than 10 percent of my life this podcast pretty cool so we're going into the sixth year shortly uh, one or no, six complete years going into our seventh year. Um, 1.4 million downloads and uh, lots of loyal listeners. And we were six to 10,000 downloads a week, which puts us, oh, I forgot to mention, um, up at the top or very near the top in iTunes podcasts on science. I've been remodeling a new old house. <laughs> um, I'm good at this. I swung a hammer for a while and uh, in the past and uh, have a pretty good handle on how to do a lot of this stuff. So uh, 
bought a new old house that really needs work. It was desperate. And I've been doing that work. And so I've been listening to podcasts all the time. And I went on iTunes and went to download some other stuff. And I discovered This Week in Virology, which is amazing, and lots of other good podcasts. But in going through them, um, I'm scrolling through the top podcasts and uh, and went right by Talking Biotech. <laughs> Like the icon for mine was right there. I didn't even notice it. And then um, uh, on the way, like I scrolled down to the bottom and didn't, you know, just to see what was there. And then as I was scrolling back up to pick a few, I saw Talking Biotech and I thought that was really cool. And so it's all because of you and I'll call because of the people who listen every week who make this part of their weekly listening scheme when they're remodeling an old house that needs it. So I thank you very much for listening. I thank you for your loyalty. Thank you for telling friends. Thank you for writing reviews. And thank you for your support on Patreon because that allows me to buy ads in social media space that uh, only bring in more listenership. So uh, it's all about sharing the science and that's what makes me excited. So I'll stop blabbing and on to this week's podcast with Cameron English from Genetic Literacy Project, the top science stories of 2020. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. Cameron and Kevin here as always. Very first show of 2021, how exciting. How are you, Kevin, in our new year? So far, so good. (laughs) (laughs) But the day is young. Yeah, who knows, right? Maybe some dragon is going to come out of the ocean and destroy New York or so. I don't know. Who who knows after after the year we've just been through. But uh let's uh let's look back on um some interesting developments from the last year. Obviously, it's been a dumpster fire as everybody knows, but there's been some interesting innovations in the science world. So we're going to talk about those, but instead of just looking back, we're going to look at the impact they've had and the the continued impact they may have moving forward. So with that in mind, Kevin, what are the, what are the stories you wanted to dive into? Well, as just to kind of reiterate what you just mentioned is that we really overshadowed a tremendously exciting year because of a coronavirus, because of COVID-19, we maybe kind of took a back seat to all of the other amazing innovations that happened in the area of biotechnology and in the area of science. And in general, and and some really great stories that were out. Um, the ones that I'll talk about today um, are about the use of gene editing to solve diseases. We'll talk about that briefly, and then we'll spend some time on um, the CRISPR edited cow, which is pretty cool. And then I'd like to wrap up by talking about the locusts. Um, we reported on this back in March of 2020, so one of our first episodes. And um, it's rearing its ugly head again and some real problems with famine. So uh, I'll touch on those three stories. Well, I can't wait. And then the the three others I wanted to cover, these are more, I guess, reflective, if you will. But I think they've never been more relevant to use another cliche. So I, I want to talk about the fact that I, uh, anti-biotech groups are not grassroots. The GLP launched a big project delving into this, and it was, like everything else, overshadowed by the pandemic, but still worth covering, I think. And then, of course, uh, Europe suspended its GMO rules to facilitate the development of vaccines. And that, of course, as people listening to this will understand, is ironic and uh, it illustrates an important point about this technology. And then finally, this may be my favorite, 
is a series of articles that we ran at GLP about the possibility of glyphosate preventing or treating cancer, which is just hilarious. And we'll get into the details later. But let's start with uh, with your first story, Kevin. Well, I was really excited to see the acceleration of gene editing to solve human disease. And the noteworthy ones were the uh, story of uh, Victoria Gray. Um, Victoria Gray was one of the first people who was treated for sickle cell disease. And this is a, a disease that affects 90,000 primarily African-American uh, folks in the States and certainly folks of uh, recent African derivation worldwide. And it turns out that you can use gene editing to disrupt a gene that is relevant to create hemoglobin. Let me put it this way to disrupt a repressor. So turn off the thing that is holding off a gene that was on when you were a fetus that produces a different kind of hemoglobin. So in other words, the defective uh, sickle cell hemoglobin um, is replaced by this uh, other kind that was around when you were a fetus. They were able to turn it on by turning off the repressor and using CRISPR, and she is sickle cell free. Um, the implications of this are huge. Uh, the other great ones this year from CRISPR treating a disease were uh, um, a congenital eye disease called Leber syndrome or conge uh, Leber congenital blindness. And again, a gene that, uh, that can be adjusted with gene editing to restore vision in folks with this kind of blindness. And the other big one that was using gene editing to solve cancer. And this was very recent. Tel Aviv uh, University, a guy named Dr. Peer, who isn't the guy who does all the peer review. <laughs> Send it to him. Um, yeah. Uh, he, uh, his lab, you, this is all in mice, but they were able to edit the genes that are required for rapid cell proliferation, specifically in cancer genes. I mean, I mean, like cancer cells. Uh, and so you had these cells that now uh, were restricted and they were able to solve problems in mice like ovarian cancer and aggressive glioblastomas. And that is super optimistic going forward because uh, that's going to be a big deal. So, so those are three or four different cases where gene editing is being used in the organism and it's solving real problems. I think that's super exciting. And this is all rapid, right? Correct me if I'm wrong, but say 10 or 15 years ago, this, I don't know if it would have been unheard of, but it, it was nowhere near reality. I don't think. Well, the technology really was only enabled in the last you know, decade, uh, certainly in the last few years. But there have been companies, a lot of startup companies that are diving all over this because of the potential huge markets in solving problems with gene editing and these targeted therapies. It's going to be a very exciting time going forward, particularly if we can have a better life expectancy and less, uh, less severe cases of things like glioblastoma. What a great thing that would be. So real exciting time in, in uh, gene editing. So what was your, um, uh, what, what's your first one? 
My first one is uh, the, the project we did about funding for organic food and anti-GMO activism. And we launched this um, about the middle of the year, I want to say. And it was the most mind-numbing work I've ever done as a, as a journalist. <laughs> <laughs> if you guys ever want to fall asleep, just look up a 1099 for a, <laughs> for a nonprofit and just go line by line. You'll fall asleep within 10 or 15 minutes, I promise. Um, but the work paid off because doing that research, you actually get to see where's the money coming from for a group like the Organic Consumers Association or U.S. Right to Know. And um, you can make connections between who's funding whom and where's the money going. Um, but you can also add up all the numbers. And when you do that, you get a, a figure that's hundreds of billions of dollars. And I think this is a big deal because the narrative, and we talked about this on the show, Kevin, but the narrative we always hear is we have big ag or big pharma or insert big whatever industry versus the little guy, the independent researcher, the small time farmer who's just trying to make his living, so on and so forth. And in reality, what you see is that there's a, a very highly organized network of nonprofits and for-profit companies and activists all working to advance a particular goal. And it's not conspiratorial in any sense. I mean, this is just sort of the reality of lobbying in a modern political context, but I think it blows the doors off that whole, that whole framing that they use against technologies like GMOs or vaccines or whatever it may be. And I think it's important for everybody to know, like, this is the, the argument that everybody makes. And Kevin, you, you know this too, right? If you want to demonize someone, you just say, well, you know, they're connected to big oil or they're connected to so-and-so. And then, you know, as an extension, they're evil, or you can discount what they're saying. And I, I think it's not really an uplifting story, but I, I think it's good for people to be aware of that and to keep that in mind as you read political commentary or you read commentary about science policy. It's important to uh, to be aware of this. Well, what was one of the biggest surprises you saw in those data? I mean, was there one organization or any particular organization that really came out as being a big player in that space? I think all the typical names that people are familiar with were a part of this, right? So Natural Resources Defense Council, Greenpeace, uh, all these big NGOs that have been around for a long time. And they have um, some street cred as environmental groups because they talk about pollution and climate change. And so they have sort of a, a gloss of acceptability. But I think what was most striking was some of the, the funders behind these groups, and, and I'm talking about big fa like family foundations that have billions upon billions of dollars that they invest. And what was striking is that it's possible that that these foundations didn't know where their where the money was going. Possibly, you know, maybe they were giving this group money because they care about climate change. But in reality, you have a group that's connected to anti-vaccine activists and anti-GMO activists. So the, these these funders may say, hey, you know, we're we're trying to fund innovative science, which they do as well. But as a part of that, they give money to some activist group that is maybe actively opposing the kind of progress uh, that the donor might want. Yeah. That, I think, is probably the, the biggest takeaway for me. It's interesting because I saw a lot of that with um, things like SourceWatch. You know, here's an organization that certainly, you know, spells out this horrible narrative about me um, that has nothing to do with reality. And doesn't emphasize anything I actually do. And yet you look at the people who fund it and they're really like really good organizations. 
and, and I sent them a note and I said, you know, do you know that this is how your money is being used? And they didn't even write back. So it's, um, it's something that is there. They get a check every year, probably not even questioning it. And, uh, in, uh, they have huge amounts of money that in some cases is being used in ways that are actually against the science we want to advance. Yeah, it's crazy. I'm actually trying to look up what they say about you and me. So maybe you <laughs> maybe you can go to your next story and I want to look up just for fun, just to see what they're saying about us. <laughs> oh, my, mine says something that I defended. Uh, uh, who's that guy from Toronto, the uh, controversial psychologist? Uh, Jordan Peterson. Uh, that I, I was a big supporter of Jordan Peterson. I'm like, you, where do you get that from? You getting that big Peterson money, Fulta? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I I always found the guy super boring, but anyway. Um, so the other did <laughs> the other thing that I thought was super cool came from Allison Van Eenenem's group um, at UC Davis. She works with a group of collaborators that have genetically engineered cows, and they've done this a few times with gene editing. And this year, they knocked in meaning they put a gene in place using gene editing, a gene called SRY. And SRY is a gene on the uh, Y chromosome that really dictates a lot of androgenic response. It's responsible for maleness. And they put the SRY gene, which is usually on the Y chromosome, into the uh, rest of the genome, just onto another chromosome in a in, uh, in what they call a safe harbor, a place where there's no other genes. They shoved it in there. And so what it means is that if you get a Y chromosome, you're a male. If you get an X chromosome and the SRY gene, then you're going to be a male, even if you have two X chromosomes. So I hope that makes sense. An X and a Y is a male, and an X and an X and is a female. But if you get an X and an X with the SRY gene, you're still male. And what it means is that 75% of the uh, cattle produced from crosses against this male should be male. So 75% male versus normally 50% male. And why would you want 75% male cows? Well, the bulls have better conversion of feed. So your food gets turned into meat a lot better than it does with females. And so you're actually uh, a step in the right direction because you're making more food or more final beef out of the same amount of input. And so that's a really good step for sustainability. And, and for consumers too, right? Because presumably it's, it's going to be lower cost at the grocery store ultimately once this gets approved and once it, these animals get into production. Is that right? Uh, yes and no. So, so ultimately that would be the idea, right? You could uh, raise fewer, fewer cattle to get the same amount of beef at a given price point or uh, potentially lower prices because of more supply. Um, the problem is, is that this technology will probably never see the light of day under our current regulatory system. And you can talk to Dr. Van Nienenim, uh at length on this, and she will lament that all of her best work probably um, never will solve the problem it was intended to solve. And she's got great proof of concept in so many different areas. She does beautiful work, yet uh, her products are unlikely to actually be on the market anytime soon. So bummer there. She told me recently, because she's got an article, several several articles that she's writing for us, but 
one of the things that FDA wanted from her research team was uh, a, a compositional analysis of the milk from gene edited cows. And she said, well, what are you looking for? And they're like, just do it. <laughs> and because it's milk, right? There's nothing, right. you know, we talk about this with any kind of biotech crop, really. The end product is just the food you're going to eat. So yep. it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Anyways, not to belabor the point, but, but hopefully something changes in the regulatory world. But uh, moving on to our next story. And I, and I love talking about this on the show when we, when we did during the summer, Kevin, but Europe suspended its GMO restrictions. So it could develop COVID-19 vaccines. <laughs> yeah. 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 And Hypocrisy I think it's too much. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's ironic. It's hypocritical, whatever you want to call it. It's, it's mostly amusing to me because we spend so much time on this show debunking these links between genetic engineering and, and dangers to your health. And then the moment that we get some kind of a global crisis, you know, Europe, which I, I think they grow one very old variety of insect resistant corn in, in like Spain and Portugal. I think that's it. That's right. So they're very much anti antibiotech when it comes to food. But the moment you go, oh, there's this new infectious disease spreading like wildfire and it could kill a lot of your your citizens. Like, well, well, okay, hold on. You know, let's let's change the rules <laughs> at, at the drop of a hat, no less. You know, I mean, th there's these anytime you deal with government, there's lots of bureaucracy and things move very slowly. But they just like that, you know, they they and they did it, which was great. So maybe this is a a good step in the right direction for people realizing the the benefit of this technology. Well, the beautiful part about that is that it's probably a harbinger of other broad changes to occur that because of COVID-19 and we sit around and look at for silver linings all the time. And maybe one of them is that now we have, I mean, how many times have you seen the word PCR in the, in the news, you know, and now everybody talks about, uh, you know, lipid nanoparticles and PCR and antibodies. And so all of this stuff that we talked about, you even hear them talking about CT cycles and things and with some authority. And when you're hearing about this on, on, you know, CNN, on Anderson Cooper, or on Fox News or whatever you listen to, everybody's talking about this. And maybe it's time that uh, it's going to become molecular biology and biotechnology around the vaccine will kind of usher in a little more acceptance and a little bit less of the yuck factor when we talk about it relative to crops. And it'll also usher in more uh, improved dialogue around, around uh, issues in medicine. So I think this is a really exciting thing that could be uh, happening here. Yes. Very exciting stuff. We could keep going on and on, but why don't you uh, dive into your last story? Well, the last story has to do, and it's a sad one, way back in our one of our first episodes, if not one of the first episodes of the Science Facts and Fallacies podcast, we talked about, uh, about the locust invasion in East Africa and in places like Kenya and then Somalia, Ethiopia, just massive, massive swarms of, uh, of locusts. And it, it was literally a plague. People could not defend their crops. And when you listen to what people were doing to protect their crops, you know, running in the field, screaming at them, waving shirts, waving blankets, um, doing whistles, anything they could do to try to scare these swarms off. Lighting tires it, on fire, right? Yeah, you name it. I mean, they were because it's anything you can throw at it to, 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 to solve the problem. And they would decimate entire 
areas of, of crops in no time. And I don't remember the exact statistic. I should have looked it up, but you know, it was, it was, they could devour in a, in an hour, the enough crops that would normally feed 35,000 people. And these swarms were massive. They were so big. You could see them on radars. And the thing that made it really sad was that there were some, uh, uh, chemicals that were being used a couple of insecticides that were being used uh, from a very limited Kenyan um, spray plane um, contingent, right? Like they had a few planes, I think five planes and they were going to go spray. And the problem is, is that activists on the ground from mostly from the EU were saying, well, maybe we ought to try something a little different. We'll try a little agroecology over here and uh, <laughs> see if we can, uh, get rid of those locusts. And now the problem is, is that, that we had a lot of animals starve there. Um, a lot of people starving higher numbers than, uh, going back to the 1980s, uh, with food insecurity. And the problem is, is that when you look at this now, um, it's still a tremendous problem. And here we are, um, this, in the most recent, uh, report in successful farming from, uh, uh, the 16th of December in 2020, um, they report that uh, this is really a problem still. And right now there's uh, the the problems with uh, locusts throughout Somalia, Ethiopia, into Yemen, uh, Saudi Arabia. Um, all of these areas are just getting crushed by these massive, massive swarms of, of locusts. Um, some one account here says they had um, 5,000 pawpaw trees on a farm uh, somewhere in uh, Ethiopia, completely stripped bare in a couple hours where no trees survive. And as a big fan of pawpaws and as someone who knows how long they take to grow, here in a couple hours, you see, you know, tens of years of growing a tree and this family's entire crop gone. Um, so it, it reminds us that why we have problems with COVID, um, the things that are going wrong here in 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 the, in the West, um, that over in the developing world, they got some major problems uh, with uh, things as simple as locusts, and have very difficult times trying to control them. And they're also dealing with COVID too. So a really important punchline. Yeah, it's brutal. And I'm looking at Reuters right now on December 17th, and they said that uh, in Eastern Africa, where this is the worst, there's already 35 million people who don't have enough food to eat. And yeah. then you bring in these swarms of locusts that are, I mean, this is really jeopardizing um, livelihoods of a lot of people. So I hope we can get this under control soon. Yeah. They're, they're talking about um, uh, another three, three to 5 million people who will be in, uh, in starvation, you know, so they're talking about famine again. And that's been a word that's been a little bit out of uh, the, the lexicon in the last uh, couple decades. Thank goodness. So a real crisis that's developing over in the Horn of Africa. Well, on a slightly better note, more optimistic maybe, is uh, this final story about the possibility of glyphosate actually treating or preventing cancer. <laughs> and I love this story because there's a couple of layers to it. The first, of course, is that, as most people are probably aware, Bayer, which um, now owns Monsanto, which developed the herbicide Roundup and the active ingredient is glyphosate. They've been facing uh, thousands of lawsuits alleging that it, that this weed killer causes cancer. 
And of course, the scientific community isn't on board with that. All the evidence that's been gathered says it's probably negligible. There's no evidence that you're going to develop cancer from, from being exposed to this herbicide. So what we did at GLP, the, uh, the cheeky individuals that we are, is we went and found four studies, very preliminary um, cell culture studies and animal studies showing that exposing tumor cells to glyphosate seem to reduce the, the tumor cells or, or even kill them. And so based on this, we said, look, you know, look at the evidence. We have mounting, uh, mounting data showing that glyphosate actually treats cancer. Now, obviously that wasn't our conclusion, but the point we were trying to illustrate, which I think is constantly relevant even today, is that you can make any case you want. If you get good at reading scientific literature and you have ill motives or you're, or you're willing to be deceptive, then you can make any case you want and make it sound convincing. And so the only antidote to that really if you're a smart consumer is to learn how to read some science. So when you, you know, you're on CNN.com or you're on naturalnews.com or whatever, it doesn't matter, right? Cause anybody can misuse evidence if they want to. And so you have to be aware of this as a consumer of media. That's an excellent point. And especially now in the era of preprint servers, it's really, really making that even uh, more of a problem because you have research that is ending up online that before it's even reviewed is being disseminated by the mainstream media. And the problem there is that it, there's a lot of papers that are just crap. And um, a lot of them that are coming out that are a lot of uh, bioinformatics heavy papers, but um, you know where they're just taking public data sets and going through them and doing things you can't do <laughs> and coming up with conclusions you can't come up with. And those of us who are wet lab scientists, you know, God, I, I love the bioinformatics folks, but when they, you get a bunch of them together without a, without a wet lab consultant and you can have them make conclusions that are not biological. So they're, they're computationally correct, but biologically implausible. And uh, there's been a lot of stuff happening in COVID space like that, um, which parallels what you're talking about. Yeah, that's a great example. And it's really bad because some preprint article will get up online and you'll get some journalist at a major outlet uh, like ABC or something. And then, you know, it shows up in Google News and then millions upon millions of people read it in the next 24 hours before a scientist like you gets a second to go, wait a minute, let me, what did they do here? Let me figure this out. And then all of a sudden people have this idea about, you know, a pesticide or about a viral disease and it's not true or it hasn't been validated at least. And this happens, I don't know how hundreds of times this has probably happened over the last year, right? I don't know how many preprint articles have been published. Maybe, you know, but oh, it's a lot, it's a lot and it's exploded around COVID right. and a lot of papers coming out of, um, uh, out of uh, parts of the world that, uh, you know, maybe are, are relying on more computational methods um, and presenting some rather um, unfortunate um, uh, um, outcomes. Actually, one of the best papers uh, that I saw, well, one of the best bad papers came out of uh, Harvard, out of a really legit lab. And sorry, it was garbage. And I, I can't believe that it was even submitted. And I hope that they take it down because it just, it got all over the news. And what and was it? What, what, if you, if you don't mind sharing, what was the it, result? Of it was about, it said that uh, there was evidence that the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus was integrating into the genome. 
And it was because they were finding what I recognized right away as artifactual uh, um, um, hybrids between what were probably uh, SARS-CoV-2 uh, uh, um, viruses that were being legitimately detected, but they hybridized with a piece of, um, uh, for technical reasons, hybridized to a different piece of DNA from a different gene and during the synthesis, during the sequencing. And uh, it happens all the time. And we have ways of sorting that out and ways of testing biologically if it's true. And, and they didn't do any of that. Um, they just reported the artifacts. And, man, that took off like wildfire. It, it kind of has – it's not a conspiratorial study by any means, but it sort of has that flavor to it. You know, like as I was saying, if you want to promote the idea that this is some kind of a conspiracy or people are hiding facts from you, you could rely on a study like this. And I could see someone like Children's Health Defense or some anti-vax group relying on this and going, look, a Harvard-based study says blah, 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 blah. And you're none the wiser if you're just the average person doing a Google search, you know? So I, I guess it just underscores that classic point that, uh, you know, a study is really the start of a conversation. It's not just because it's peer-reviewed or because it's published even that doesn't mean the conclusion is valid, right? That's just part of the the broader investigation. That's exactly right, and it's just another step on the on the way, right? So, uh, what so what was the ultimate reason that glyphosate was killing cancer cells? Is it just because it probably had was it glyphosate or Roundup? Well, it depends on the study. So, in I believe because there was four total. So, the first three we looked at, it actually was the active ingredient glyphosate that seemed to have some kind of a protective effect or some kind of a treatment effect. And I don't think they actually know why it happened yet. And a part of the reason is, you know, they do a study like this and they see that it, there's probably nothing to it. And so they're not going to pursue more funding for it and no one's really going to invest money in it. So it, it kind of, it just kind of falls. Um, but in the final study, it was the, the surfactant that they use yeah. To help to help the and you know all this, Kevin, to help the the active ingredient penetrate the leaf of a plant or or a weed that you're trying to kill. So they don't really know, as that's my understanding, is it it probably has some effect, but again, it's at such a preliminary level. And I talked to Mary Mangan, who we've talked about on the show before, but she she does these kind of cell culture experiments. And she said what people need to know is that every cell you work with in a dish like this, it's already cancerous because you need the cell to continue dividing. So you can see, you know, what, what effect it's having, you know, what chem, what the chemical is actually doing. And so from the get go, you're working with damaged material, right? So you just have to be aware at, at how limited this research is. And so that's the, the underscore point to, to remember. Yeah. They're immortalized cell lines in most cases. And so they already have problems with uh, uh, constricting their division. And the thing, the other thing to remember is, is that these uh, surfactants, right? These are, uh, think of soap, right? They're, they're, they're there to break surface tension, to allow the chemicals, the active ingredients to get into the leaf. And um, those break cells They'll in a, in a Petri dish. You know, cells in a Petri dish are pretty fragile critters. You look at them wrong. You add distilled water. You add too much sugar or salt, and they're going to die. I mean, it's, it's very, very fragile. And so putting in a herbicide in a soapy surfactant, um, no, no surprise that they're dying. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and interesting, I keep thinking of stuff to say, but the activist groups will use these kind of cell culture studies to show that glyphosate causes cancer. Because as you said, you don't know what kind of effect you could, you know, you dump a chemical on some cells and you go, oh, look, hey, it's, it's got cancer now. I guess, I guess it causes cancer. Now the researchers rarely say that they say, Hey, you know, here's a preliminary thing we found This should be investigated, so on and so forth. But if you're us right to know, you have the result you want, which is glyphosate might cause cancer. And then that becomes fodder for the lawsuits that we've seen. So there you go. Junk science abounds. Yeah, actually the famous one was Seralini's group. Uh, had Leydig cells, which are testicular cells in in culture, and they added glyphosate and showed they produced less uh, testosterone. Only, um, which okay, you, <laughs> you put in you put in herbicide with that stuff, it disrupts the cells. But the funny part was, it only did it at the lowest concentration. <laughs> so <laughs> you barely put in any, and it, it it causes the amount of testosterone to go down a little bit but enough that it was statistically significant in their experiments. But as you add more, um, it's normal. Right. And, <laughs> and and based upon that conclusion, uh, that, that data, they made all these um, assertions in their paper about how it was glyphosate causing the, uh, um, the, the decreased fertility in the world. And uh, you know, it, it was amazing. That was, that paper was just blew me away because it, it used such a minor, minor little grain of evidence to extrapolate into um, the end of the human race. <laughs> right, right. So if you want a healthy endocrine system, drink lots of glyphosate. Don't drink a little bit. Drink lots of... <laughs> I'm kidding. Don't drink any. Don't drink any. Not medical advice. No, no, no. <laughs> no that's very good. Not, no, no. Very good. So, so um, is that our last one? That is our last one. I think we are uh, we're off to a good start for 2021, and I'm just praying to God that th- we see some improvements this year over over what we've seen so far in 2020. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and I think we will, and I think that with the vaccines, have a lot of hope, and I really hope that the excitement around them spawns a new dialogue around the power of biotechnology and what we can do with medicine, because. Those breakthroughs like sickle cell disease, just they, they almost bring tears to my eyes because it's what we have fought for and talked about and pushed that here is this great technology that is so much maligned and we're finally seeing it live to its promises um, that I, I, I admit are a little bit later than we thought they would be. Um, but maybe there's a chance for some real change and especially that can get to the developing world that's uh, extremely exciting for me. So I hope people keep listening to Science Facts and Fallacies um, every week and uh, continue to listen to Talking Biotech. There's lots of good stuff coming. Very good. Well, we will see you guys next week. The Talking Biotech podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast, which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort, recommend guests, and support us with a few shekels over on Patreon. 
We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.